When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. Thanks to you guys for joining us here. Big show, no Shahan. Doug Maurice is here, that's me. Shahan is off, and to replace him, Shahan has the strength of five people. So we got five other people to help me. Because listen, I know you guys listen for Shahan, and I'm just in the way. But we want to wrap around the best teams that are now done with spring football. We did it last week with Texas A&M, Michigan, Cincinnati, and Clemson. This week, listen to this lineup we got for you. We're going to start off with the team that played in the national title game, Alabama. That'll kick it off. We'll wrap up with the team that won the national championship, Georgia. Both those teams played their spring game on Saturday. In between, Miami, Ohio State, Michigan State. We have people who know those teams really well. We're going to dive in on them. It's worth your while. If you care about college football, if you care about the national picture, what the best teams are doing this spring, this is a great place to round all of that up. And and I do want to give you a little tease because, you know, we try to bring you the goods here on the College Football Survivor Show. If you like it, tell a friend. If you don't like it, keep it to yourself, frankly. Okay? Just be annoyed by me quietly. Don't spread that around. We do this bonus pod every week for Apple Podcast subscribers. It's $2.99 a month. It's 75 cents an episode, right? Because you get four a month. And so this week, it's going to be Shahan and I drafting the 20 programs that we would find it most intriguing if Nick Saban went and took over that program and tried to make the playoff for the next five years. We've had that discussion on this podcast. How many programs could Nick Saban go to and in five years, turn that program into a playoff team. Shahan and I drafted. Listen, we're not, we're not sending them to Clemson or Ohio State or Oklahoma, teams that have been playoff regulars. We're trying to send them to good programs so that he can get over the top. Or maybe even like eh, programs that he can rejuvenate or maybe take to a level they've never seen before. So that was a lot of fun. You're not going to find that anywhere else. Listen, frankly, you might find a spring wrap. Not as good as this. We have great people on this pod. This one's great today. But this other thing, I mean, that's nuts. Who does that? So it's really fun. We try to bring you that in the bonus pod, maybe a little weirder on the bonus pod. That's what it is this week. Ten, or excuse me, 10 places each, 20 total. We would like to Nick Saban, see Nick Saban try to make the playoff. But this, this is hardcore football. Because you're hardcore, you know that. Again, no Shahan. It's me and a guest with all these teams, their expertise, their uh, generosity to bring it to you guys here in the College Football Survivor Show. We'll start it off with the Alabama Crimson Tide and Mike Rodak. Four other great teams after that. We appreciate you guys being part of it. Here's Mike starting with Alabama 
on the College Football Survivor Show. Time to talk Bama here on the College Football Survivor Show with Mike Rodak of AL.com. You can't find better coverage of the best college football program in the country than AL.com. Mike, you've been part of that since 2019, right? That's right. Four years now. And you did a lot of NFL before that, right? Before you came to AL.com? I did, yeah. I covered the six years before that. I covered the uh, the Buffalo Bills for ESPN. And then before that, I was covering the uh, the Patriots for ESPN Boston for three years. So listen, I, yeah, you know, they're just they're just guys. They're just 20, 19 and 20 year old guys. But does Nick Saban, Alabama, are there similarities to an NFL team in terms of how they go about their business? Have you found that? Yeah, I mean, facility wise, to start with, it's just up there with any facility I've been to NFL wise. And I mean, it's certainly they have the idea of preparing guys for the draft. I mean, they've obviously had the most, I'd say, in the last 10 years of any college in the country. So the, the goal for almost every player that steps foot at Alabama is to go to the NFL. And I think they try to make their system both on the field, off the field, all that be like the NFL. So, yeah, I've seen that, you know, up close. I don't know if it's entirely the same, just in terms of I think Saban really likes to have control over everything. And I'm, I'm used to an NFL perspective, talking to assistant coaches and we talk to coordinators once a week in the NFL. Well, Alabama, we never talk to assistants. We talk to coordinators once a year. Uh, that's different. We don't get to talk to freshmen at all. That's another saving rule that he brought along with him from, from Michigan State. So a little bit different in that regard in the sense that it's it's Saban's world. But um, I think they do try to prepare guys like it's the NFL. All right. So we like to start off with quarterback talk because everybody loves quarterbacks. And Alabama has the Heisman winner at quarterback in Bryce Young. Can you learn much? Sometimes I think it's hard. It was similar a little bit with C.J. Stroud at Ohio State this spring. What do you what do you learn new about a guy like that? Right. That like, hey, Bryce Young, good at football. But what did you sort of see from Bryce Young this spring and in the A game on Saturday? And then like what what's the next thing for him? What what does he want to do? What's he want to improve on? And what does Alabama want to do with him more this year coming off of Heisman? Well, I think the biggest thing for him is can he make something happen if everything's not perfect around him because for most of the season last year they had John Matchy and they had Jameson Williams at receiver and the offense was great for the most part and then he loses Matchy in the SEC championship game loses Jameson Williams in the national championship game and by the second half of that game against Georgia that offense was pretty flat I mean he's thrown to a tight end who's a limited athlete thrown to a running back who's a limited athlete their wide receivers were young athletic but young and weren't catching the ball very well just wasn't working um, and so for him, if you're going to go to the NFL, you're going to be a number one overall pick, number two, number three. You're going to be going to a team that doesn't have the weapons around you, doesn't have the offensive line in front of you. So he's going to have to show, you know, going into the season that he's able to to do those things without Williams or Mechie around him. I mean, they went out and they got Jermaine Burton from the transfer portal from Georgia. But I think if everybody expects him to come in as a wide receiver and be just like what Jamison Williams was when he came from Ohio State, those are high expectations. That's Those are big shoes to fill. I don't know if it's going to happen right away. So he might be working with less of a surrounding cast than he had last year. And so he needs to show that he needs to be able to create things when things aren't going well. I don't know if he showed that in the spring game, to be honest. I mean, the conditions weren't great. It was raining. It was wet. Um, his offensive line has been a, a mess this spring, both in terms of numbers. And they, they've lost some guys to the draft. He got sacked nine or ten times on Saturday. And his receivers are still coming along as well. So 
it, it was not a good spring game for him. I don't know if he created very much on his own. Um, it's just a question of can they get things going around him enough this season where he can kind of show off some of his abilities. It's hard to carry the Heisman. Like, what a great honor. But when you're an underclassman, they don't send you to the Heisman house, man. You got to you gotta stay on campus. So he's not he's not hanging out with Barry Sanders and stuff yet. How do you think – did you get any sense from Bryce Young this spring of how he's carrying that or just from the kind of person that you know him to be? I'm not saying he's going to collapse under the weight. I'm just saying that's real, right? I mean, I think that's a real thing for any young person. It is, yeah. And, and there's not too many Heisman winners that are, A, underclassmen who have, a, I guess, a, a need to go back to school, as he does. This is only, it was only a second year when he won the Heisman, so he needs a third year to stay in school. And there's not a whole lot of Heisman winners that win it back-to-back. So there is a lot of um, precedent, I guess, against him in that regard. But I, I would say, like, personality-wise with him, he's so – Mr. Cool, calm, collected. Like he's boring with us, to be honest. He's very robotic with us, but that's a good thing. That's what Saban wants. I think that's what NFL teams will look for is just very polished, very sort of even keeled where I don't think the Heisman hype has really gotten to him. I don't think he has that big head. I don't think he has the um, expectations that are, are going to weigh on him too much this year. I think for him, it's just, he's just got to figure out, how much he can do himself and how much he needs to rely on others. And can he rely on others this season as much as he did last year? There's sort of that balance there that he needs to strike between trying to force it too much down the field, trying to run the ball too much when he doesn't need to. There's certain things there where he, he needs to find the right balance, but I don't know if it's a mental thing in, in regards to, you know, the Heisman and the expectations that come along with that. He's really good. I mean, like, you know, from afar, I, I, when we saw three second-year quarterbacks who were the three highest-ranked guys in their recruiting class going into last year with Bryce Young, DJ Uyunglele at Clemson, and CJ Stroud at Ohio State, hard to go three for three, right? And so it was like, who maybe won't quite be what we expect? And it was DJ. Clearly, it was DJ. Bryce was, what What else could you want? And CJ had a little bit of a slow start and then was really good down the stretch. So I think, you know, this is this is a rare spot. We've seen more underclassmen win the Heisman, but Bryce Young is in rare air. And if he is a calm, cool, collected dude, that will serve him well in this area. I'm curious about where Bama maybe won't be as good this year. Is it receiver? You talk about losing Jamison Williams, losing John Mechie. Jermaine Burton is in. You know, some good young guys, right? Your Corey Brooks and some other guys there. What... Is it if I said name the area where Bama might take a step back in twenty two? Is it receiver or would you go somewhere else? I'd go receiver, and I think Saving even said it after the spring game. If if they don't have what they need at receiver, then it, it kind of makes everything harder in the rest of the offense. Doesn't allow some of the other strengths that they have to really shine through. So um, they're not done with the portal. I mean, even though it's April eighteenth here, they're not done. I mean, they they already went out and got Burton out of the portal from Georgia. Uh, apparently the next name that they can get is, is Tyler Harrell, who just went into the portal from Louisville, apparently one of the fastest receivers in the country. Saban loves that speed aspect that he had with Jalen Waddle and Henry Ruggs and Devontae Smith and those guys. So um, I, I think they're going to go out and get, get another guy. And you add that to Burton, you add that to Ja'Cory Brooks, who you might remember kind of came through towards the end of the season last year in the Iron Bowl and then uh, caught a touchdown in the, uh, the Cotton Bowl against Cincinnati. That's that's probably the three that they'll roll with, but there's 
there's been seven, eight guys they've recruited there the last couple of years who haven't really developed the way that the group ahead of them did. You know, the Devontae Smiths, Ruggs, Judy, Mechie, those guys. And so I think they're kind of having to backfill a little bit through the portal. Um, I think they they like what they have in running back in, in Jameer Gibbs, especially him as a receiver. So I think they could kind of fill that gap a little bit by throwing to their running back. And he's a pretty explosive guy who I think was third in the country in all-purpose yards last year. So I don't know if it will look the same offensively in terms of the downfield passing, but I think they're going to try to accomplish some of the same things, maybe with different personnel. What is it that they went they went from this position room that had Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs III, Jalen Waddle, and Devontae Smith in the room together. The two first two guys were older. They left. The other two guys filled right in. Messi was still there. They went from like the best wide receiver room in the country into a position where now here for the second year in a row, they're leaning on the portal to fill in. Has the recruiting at receiver dropped off a little bit? Are they still getting good recruits and just not developing them as much? It seems like such a stark difference from the last, you know, for in, in a short amount of time. I think, yeah, it's, I think it's more the development. You know, they have a guy or they had a guy like Devontae Smith who Saban loved. Saban said in four years he was there. He was never in his office for anything bad. It was a guy who worked really hard, won the Heisman, um, came from very little in Louisiana and sort of had that motivation to bring himself up and become what he's been. Some of the guys that recruited lately, I, I don't know if that same mentality holds true. I mean, they're four and five star guys. They're top 20, top 30 guys, but sort of the poster child for their if you want to call it a failure of recruiting, I'm not sure that's it's probably too strong of a word, but a Jai Hall is a guy who came in as a borderline four or five star wide receiver prospect last year, was great in the spring game, athletic, long, made all the plays, and it kind of got to his head, his success that he had really early, and then he wanted the ball and went on Twitter about it, about his lack of playing time early last season, and that really seemed to irritate Nick Saban to the extent that he got suspended for a game in the middle of the year and it just all kind of spiraled downhill for Jai Hall to the point where he just got kicked off the team a couple weeks ago and is now in the transfer portal and will be somewhere else so um, Saban's talked about it you know he says that some of the rod receivers just come in and they expect a lot in terms of you know they want results before they want to necessarily do the work to get there or respect the process as he likes to say and um, you know, those guys just haven't come along, whether it's been a Jai Hall or a couple of the other younger guys they have. But it, it does help, I think, when you have the portal to kind of find those guys and, and backfill those positions where it's not happening right away for some of the young guys. Tell you what, man, don't go on Twitter and complain about anything if you play for Nick Saban. Every, those guys get that memo like the first week they're there, right? I can't believe a, a guy for Alabama would do that. Right. And that was, I mean, it was like the, the longest from the start of that whole saga until a couple of weeks ago. And he went into the portal. It was like, why hasn't this guy left yet? Like it was just this back and forth where Saban would kind of talk down about him and a Jai Hall go on Twitter about it. And it was just like, all right, these two need a divorce. But it was just this marriage that kept going and going to the point where I think Saban finally got fed up and told him to take a hike. So we've been doing this for about 10 or 11 minutes, and I respect it, Mike, because I can tell you're good at your job because you cover the best modern college football dynasty we've seen in half a century. And we've been mostly talking about what's wrong with them, because when you're that close, you see all the little cracks. And then from afar, it's just like, wow, they're awesome. Guess what? Bama's still awesome. Where are they going to be even better? Maybe in 2022. Where, what position group or area might they take a step forward? 
Yeah, I mean, I think defensively there will be a better team. It was interesting watching the spring game. I don't think there's any talk about Pete Golding, their defensive coordinator, or their defense, whereas the last couple of years that was all fans cared about was why is the defense falling off? Why haven't they fired Pete Golding yet? Like it was all about the defense, um, especially when fans had that expectation of early on in Saban's tenure when those defenses were so dominant and they were allowing, you know, less than 10 points a game and then these last couple years the defenses are allowing 20 25 points a game in some cases higher than that um this year i mean it seems like they could go back a little bit to some of those old saving defenses where i think they could be really dominant they have the the pass rushers especially will anderson who played as a freshman in that national championship game against ohio state but last year very easily could have been the heisman um i think you know finished fifth in the voting. I think Alabama fans are mad about that. He was probably the most dominant player in college football last year, just from what I watched and comes in in the spring game over the weekend. And it was just wreaking havoc on an offensive line that had some issues going into it. And to the point where Nick Saban said on the ESPN broadcast of the spring game that we needed to take him out just to make it a fair fight, just so we could evaluate our offense. I mean, he's that good of pass rusher. He's going to be a top five pick in the NFL draft next year. But beyond that, they have two other pass rushers who they want to get on the field all at the same time. And Dallas Turner, who had a great national championship game against Georgia, and then another five-star kid, they're all five-star kids, of course, it's Alabama, Chris Braswell, who didn't really play the last couple of years, but has been really good this spring. So you're talking about three guys who can get after the quarterback, a defense that I think could lead the country in sacks if, if the numbers work out that way and be really dominant in that part of the game. I don't know if their secondary is as strong as it's usually been. That front seven of that Alabama defense is going to be fierce. So I think Will Anderson's going to win the Heisman because I think he has a lot of things set up for him that a defensive player needs some help, right? But most of the time voters – they don't want to give a guy a Heisman twice. So I think Alabama's going to be great. Bama's Bama. But I think Anderson becomes the better candidate than Bryce Young because Bryce Young has to live up to himself and Bryce Young has to try to live up to Archie Griffin. So I think that's in Will Anderson's favor. I actually think the backlash that happened in college football for him not getting a New York invite helps him more than if he would have gotten there and been like, hey, he was fourth. He's, he was here. Like being fifth and being edged out I think he got more attention for that. And I think the story, you need to have stats and a story going in. There's clearly, everybody knows the deal with Will Anderson. And I think there's going to be a push of, hey, what are we doing? This guy's the best player. Do we, are defensive players not allowed to win? I think this is real because when it comes to the Heisman, it's not just the performance, it's other stuff. He's got the performance. And then you go through tackles for loss. He has 10 more tackles for loss than anybody in the country. But I think he's got the other stuff. How real do you think this Heisman candidacy for Will Anderson is? I think it should be. I think it should have been last year. I'm not really sure why it never really seemed to come together. But, I mean, he's a guy who's so self-motivated to begin with. Like, I don't know if he even needs a slight against him to have that extra push this year. But I think having it will just give him that much more. You know, he's a guy who's wired. Like, you pick – if Nick Saban had to just – Madden create a player the perfect guy from a physical standpoint a but b just a mental makeup standpoint like will anderson is it i mean i think even saban said one time there's no such thing as a perfect player but there's will anderson you know that's it's probably nick saban's favorite player i would imagine from having coached 15 years now at alabama just in terms of a guy who you never need to worry about giving an effort 
giving motor, you know, being ready, being prepared for each game. He was hurt last year down in Florida. It was 80 degrees out, just dripping humidity and raining. And Will Anderson was out there playing on one leg and playing as hard as anybody else on the field. And that was a game that I think really endeared him to Nick Saban. So he plays hard, um, just has that 100% effort to him, just the character to him, I think is, is off the charts. So if you're looking for a story with him, that's that's probably it. Um, but I don't even know if he needs that that slight of, of not being a finalist. I think he's just wired such a way that he's going to give it his all this year, no matter what. Yeah, I think I think it's real, and I'll be very close to watch it. If you guys are if you're listening to this and you haven't listened back, we did it on a bonus episode of the College Football Survivor Show a couple weeks ago. Shahan and I went through, and I made my case for why I think this thing is real with Will Anderson. That I also will tease briefly. The Bonus episode for Apple Podcast subscribers. You pay $2.99 a month. You get four extra episodes a month for that. Coming this week after this free podcast for everybody, the next show will be out in the day. Mike Shahanje Haraja, my co-host, and I, we picked, we drafted the 20 programs in the country that we would think would be the most intriguing, where we think Nick Saban could go take over and make them a playoff team in five years. Because we think that is a lot of places where at least would be possible. He's good. I know he's good. He's Nick Saban. Does that sound crazy to you? We went through, I mean, again, we're not sending him to Ohio State and Oklahoma and USC. We're sending them places where it's a little bit more difficult. Is that, are we being too kind to Nick Saban or is he that rare that if you drop him in and give him time, he's going to make it happen? I think that that's definitely reasonable, I th- especially in the, this day and age of college football where you have the transfer portal. Imagine Nick Saban going to Indiana and you can get anybody in the country. It doesn't matter that you're in Indiana. You can go out and recruit essentially from any team in the country and bring anybody in. I mean, that's that's only helping him um, probably more than anybody else. So, yeah, I, mean, I think it's possible. I don't know if at this point in his career he would do that necessarily. I think he enjoys what he has in Tuscaloosa. I think he's going to continue doing it for quite a while. I mean, he's 70 this year. He'll be 71 in October. He's got, I'd say, at least three, four, five years left in him. Um, but if he did go somewhere else in sort of a hypothetical world, I think he could definitely get a team to the playoff, especially if you have a 12-team playoff. That would yeah. always help me. 30 mil a year, 30 mil a year. Somebody out there, throw it at him. See what happens. It'd be worth it. All right, worth it in quotation marks, but actually it would be worth it. Mike, last question. Alabama's been a playoff regular. I thought in 2020, after Alabama missed the playoff in 2019, all I talked about was angry Bama going into 2020. I was like, do not get in their way. And then guess what? They were talented and angry, and they were the best team in the country that won the national championship. To lose to Texas A&M last year, to lose the national title game, are they angry? And then will this team be in the playoff? I almost feel stupid asking. It. I have it written down. I have to ask it. Will Alabama be in the playoff mix in 2022? But what kind of Alabama team is going to be in the playoff mix this season? I think they'll be angry. At least the guys who were here last year. And there's so much turnover that sometimes that's not something you can take for granted because there are so many transfers that they have. They have four transfers coming in, all the freshmen they have playing. Like, that feeling might not exist completely among the team, but when you have a guy like Will Anderson, just to go back to him, I mean, Saban loves him from a leadership standpoint too, because he's calling out other players. He's motivating other players. He sort of has that, uh, that gall in him, if you will, to, to tell his teammates what they need to do better. And I think that theme of what happened to end last season will 
kind of resonate through the locker room, through guys like Anderson, through Bryce Young. He's a little bit quieter, as we talked about. But, yeah, I think there there definitely will be an anger factor that happens that, that goes on among this team. You know, they'll, they'll be in the playoff mix. I think what will separate them from other teams is going to be what they're able to do offensively to be that elite, unstoppable team. How many athletes do they have that a team like Georgia – you know, can match up against. Do you have enough? Do you have too many? Do you have too little? Like there's Gibbs right now. I think Jermaine Burton's a candidate to be that sort of player. If they can get Tyler Harrell, I think he has the speed to do that, but they're still trying to find offensively the pieces that are just going to make them that much better than everybody else. Like they were two years ago. Devontae Smith was better than any other Ohio State player in the field. And that was obvious. I don't know if they have that player right now, and can they develop that? Can they find that in the portal? I think that's sort of the, the lingering question for him right now. Best Alabama coverage in the country, Mike Rodak and his colleagues at AL.com. If you're not reading it, you're missing out. Mike, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join us on the College Football Survivor Show. You got it. Thank you very much. We'll be right back after this with more spring wrap-ups on the College Football Survivor Show. Don't miss the College Football Survivor Show bonus episode this week, where Doug Maurice and Shahan Jehuraja draft 20 teams they'd like to see Nick Saban try to lead to the playoff. Available only on Apple Podcasts. The other thing about Army and Navy, too, that makes it so interesting is that the conversation for them is always going to be about the Army-Navy game. And so I feel like one of Nick Saban's great challenges of going to Army would be to take focus from that game you kind of have to put that game to the side a little bit in some ways so i like the pick of army i think that they have one of the more interesting unique cases and i think that being a team that plays independent football i think that there's a pathway where they could schedule in such a way that that maybe they could give themselves a chance i do think that makes it more interesting all of a sudden it's like oh who's army playing next year usc michigan texas florida alabama clemson and ohio state And I have a second part of this now that I've realized now that I've chosen Army instead of Navy. Bill Belichick grew up in Annapolis. His dad was a coach at Navy. Belichick, inspired by Saban taking the job at Army, leaves the Patriots and takes the job at Navy. And we get an Army-Navy game of Saban versus Belichick. Who's in for that? Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for exclusive College Survivor Show bonus episodes. Joined now by Adam Lichtenstein of the South Florida Sun Sentinel, because I want to talk canes, Adam. Let, before we get into our questions here, what's like, is there juice? Are people fired up? What, what's what's the fan base thinking about uh, the Mario Cristobal era of Miami football so far from what you saw during spring? Oh, yeah. People are, are super hyped. Uh, it all started, I mean, after he got hired, you couldn't really find a more Miami guy. I mean, won two national titles uh, with the Hurricanes when he was a player. You know, was a uh, coach here briefly, an assistant coach. Uh, you know, it's like he was coming home. It, you know, he's a Miami guy. You know, you couldn't have asked for a person to hire, a coach to hire, who'd better get the fans fired up more than Mario Cristobal. And then he comes in. The recruiting class is good. He he's able to take a Hurricanes recruiting class that was like, I think ranked in like the 60s or 70s uh, when Manny Diaz left, and he turned it into like a top 15 class, and that's that got fans hyped up. Uh, they feel like, you know, they can compete for any, any recruit any, anywhere in the country. So they're juiced up about that. Coming into spring, uh, there's a lot of intensity, uh, a lot of, a lot of energy around the team, a lot of energy with the fans. Everyone's excited. Um, and they're really, there's a good core of players that people can get excited about. It's not like a total 
You know, it's not like Mario Cristobal came in with an empty closet here. Uh, there's a lot of good players on the team. Tyler Van Dyke obviously is one of them. Uh, you know, people are talking about him as a potential Heisman candidate even. Like, there's a lot of excitement around this team. So, like, what was the general atmosphere like at the spring game this past Saturday? Do people get fired up for the Miami spring game, or is it, you know, it's fine, but it's not that big a deal? Um, I think somewhere in between. I don't think it wasn't like, you know, a, a spring game at, you know, a big SEC school or a Big Ten school where, you know, you've got 100,000, 50,000 people in the stands. They actually hosted it at um, an MLS stadium in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and it's about an 18,000, 19,000 seat stadium. And they, they probably got about 10,000. It's hard. They didn't release an official attendance number. Officially, it was sold out. Tickets were free. Um, for, I think a lot of people probably claimed them and said, eh, it's a little too hot today. I'm going to stay home. But um, they, they drew a good crowd. And there was a good atmosphere. People were into it. You know, people were excited. Uh, so it was definitely the spring game was it was a fun, fun spring game. All right. So you've already mentioned this guy. He's Mario Cristobal's number one. Why everybody's fired about, about about the Canes and why I find them so interesting. Number two is Tyler Van Dyke at quarterback. Pretty darn good last year. We have talked about him on this podcast when we've had some offseason discussions about Heisman dark horses. Who's a guy to have your eye on? What did Tyler Van Dyke show people, uh, Adam, during this spring? How excited should people be about what kind of quarterback play Miami might get this fall? Uh, I think people should be very excited. Um, he obviously had a great year last year, you know, 25 touchdowns, close to 3,000 yards, didn't even play the whole season. Uh, and he just looked, he looked fantastic in the spring. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to pretend I'm, you know, an NFL scout or anything, but he certainly looked like a first round pick to me. He looked like a really good quarterback to me. Uh, you know, a lot of accurate throws, just looked really good in the bit, in the parts of practice that we were able to see. Uh, practices aren't open the whole time to the media. Uh, we didn't get to see like the scrimmages and stuff, but he looked good to me. And even, you know, during the spring game, um, you know, we had some, a, a couple, I think one or two, you know, not so great throws and a few receivers, you know, kind of hurt him a little bit in the numbers because they had a few drops. But, uh, I think, you know, he's in line to have a great, great season. I, I think people should be excited. I definitely think he's, if not a Heisman, you know, front runner, if not in that, maybe not in that group, but definitely, I don't even think it's fair to call him a dark horse. He's definitely a, a candidate. He could have a really great season. And we know Josh Gaddis, who has shown what kind of offensive uh, mind he is, what he did at Michigan, now the offensive coordinator at Miami. Is he going to unleash Tyler Van Dyke? Do you think they're going to be throwing a lot? I mean, I think I think Josh Gaddis is a guy who will find the best way to take advantage of the talent. But h- how often do you think they'll be chucking it around? Um, well, that's exactly right. That's been coming into spring after Josh Gaddis was hired. Uh, if you look at Michigan's offense from last year, it's like, oh, they ran the ball a lot. Their passing offense, uh, you know, was not, you know, a high-flying passing offense. So people were saying coming into spring, he's going to run the ball a lot. They're not going to take advantage of, you know, having Tyler Van Dyke. He's not going to be able to, you know, utilize him that way. But the the mantra this this spring from, from Josh Gaddis has been, we're going to, use the players that we have in the way that kind of best suits their ability. And he's got a great quarterback. You know, he inherits a great quarterback. Uh, the issue with that, I mean, the receivers, Miami lost their two top receivers from last year, Charleston Rambo and Mike Harley Jr. So the question is kind of who fills that role. They need to find receivers to kind of step into that role and be, you know, big time targets for Tyler Van Dyke. But, you know, they have talented guys, uh, Jacoby George, Keyshawn Smith. Uh, they have a slot guy named Xavier Restrepo, who's a local kid. Um, they've got receivers, so is, if one of them or two of them steps up and becomes a big time target, I think they'll sling it around. I think they'll take advantage of what they have, and they what they have is a great quarterback. All right. So again, it's it's a r- little remarkable 
for our national audience here, just like that Miami's been fine, but has not been great for basically two decades. In the last 18 years, one double-digit win season, 2017 in year two of Mark Richt, uh, 10 and three. Before that, it goes back to 2003 with Larry Coker, 11 and two. Just like Miami being good at football is good for the world. It makes everybody happy. It makes college football better. So as we're trying to think about maybe an upswing here with the Hurricanes. Where would you say, Adam, you think they'll be better in 2022 from what you saw this spring? Again, they were they were fine last year, 7-5. and five. Um, Where do you think the, the biggest improvement in this team might come? Uh, definitely on defense. Uh, if you look at the team last year, their offense was really, really good. Like uh, ACC contending offense. I think they were around, around 25th in the nation uh, in scoring offense last year. They had a very, very good offense. Um, the defense is where they had issues. They really, really struggled in tackling. I think pro football focus, um, had them ranked very close to the bottom of the country in tackling. Um, that's where they really, really struggled. And they brought in Kevin Steele, who I think probably every college football fan in the country knows because he's been at like half the schools in the country at some point or another. Um, but he's a very talented defensive coordinator. And that's what they've been working on a lot is tackling, you know, wrapping guys up, bringing them to the ground, making sure that they're not you know, letting guys get past them. And they do have talent on defense. Um, I think their safety group might be among the best in the nation. James Williams is a star. Uh, I covered him in high school, actually. And he just blew past everyone on the field. He's here in Miami now. Uh, showed some flashes last year as a freshman. And he's coming into his true sophomore season. He's a great player. Uh, Avante Williams is a really good safety. Cam Kinchin's another really good safety. They got, they've got to find a way to get three really good safeties on the field as much as they can. Uh, they got decent linebackers. They brought in some good uh, defensive linemen, a few transfers. I really think the defense is going to be really improved this year. Uh, may not be, you know, a top 10 defense in the country, but it'll certainly, I think, be better uh, than where it was last year. Yeah, by the way, I mean, Kevin Steele, that guy, that guy's gotten paid throughout college football. He's one of these guys who helped sort of usher in this era of super high paid assistance, but he's been everywhere. Oklahoma State, Tennessee, Nebraska, Baylor, Florida State, Alabama, LSU, Auburn, like this, this guy uh, has been around the block and that's part of, right? I mean, that's a little bit of the proof of, hey, is this going to be like the reinvigoration of Miami football? It's like, okay, they got Mario Cristobal who proved at Oregon what kind of coach and recruiter he was and he's as Canes as you can be through and through. And then an offensive coordinator, they stole Josh Gaddis from Michigan, who was the best assistant coach in America last year, won the Broyles Award. And a defensive coordinator, they get a guy who has been one of the best defensive coordinators in college football for the past 20 years. Miami's serious about this, right? There, There's no doubt that they are all in trying to get back to what the U once was. Oh, yeah. And you don't even have to stop there. They brought in Charlie Strong to coach linebackers. You know, he's a linebackers coach, you know, and he's a co-defensive coordinator. Uh, Jamil Day, you know, they, they pulled him out from Georgia. Um, he's a really talented secondaries coach. Um, Kevin Smith is a really solid running backs coach. Like they've got their coaching staff is loaded. Um, they went with a lot of guys who've proved it at other places. Uh, Alex Mirabal, offensive line coach, did a lot of great things, coached up uh, Pinai Sewell, Sewell at Oregon with Mario Cristobal. Like they've got guys on the staff. They're, they're showing like they want to be serious. I mean, I, I'm relatively new to the Hurricanes beat, but the, the knock against them for years, even when they were really good, was that they don't have, they're not, they were not willing to open the checkbook. Cause, you know, as big of, as Miami's footprint is and has been over the course of the last 40, 50 years of college football, it's a small school. It's a small private university. 
and you know they're not getting something that they don't don't open the checkbook they don't pay you know a lot for coaches they won't they won't fund and give the resources to the program that seems you know under Dan Radakovich that seems to have changed you know in the last you know five months or so they're willing to bring in people they want to be back to where they were 20 30 years ago and again Dan Radakovich former AD at Clemson he's not going to go be the athletic director at a place that's not serious about football. So this is a sea change in what Miami is investing and what they're trying to do. But Adam, you know, I mean, probably not going to go undefeated where they maybe is there a, from this spring, what you saw, is there an area of the team that's a question mark or maybe won't be as good as it was in 2021? Where are the biggest concerns? Um, well, like I mentioned earlier at wide receiver, uh, they lost their two biggest contributors. Charleston Rambo and Mike Carley both set records at Miami. Uh, you know, I think Rambo set the record for uh, most receiving yards. Mike Carley has the most receptions, I think, in Miami history. So if there's going to be a step back, it might be there. But, I mean, you know, glass half full, half empty. Yeah, they lost, you know, their two biggest producers, but they've got guys, they've got talented players there who can, if they're not going to have 1,200-yard receiving seasons, who could have good years. Like I said, Jacoby George, Frank Ladson Jr. transferred in from Clemson. He's a South Florida kid. Um, Keyshawn Smith, they've, they've got guys. It's a question of, you know, can they limit their drops and can they, you know, just kind of replace that production? Again, he's Adam Lichtenstein. Adam, what, what's the website if people want to read your coverage about the hurricanes at the Sun Sentinel? What's the website they should go to? Uh, sunsentinel.com. You can follow me on Twitter at AB Lichtenstein, always tweeting, uh, tweeting out my stories and other random stuff that I, that I see during the day. If you go to, the Sun Sentinel website, there's just a, there's a ton of Miami content. It's really good. Adam is all over everything. And his Twitter feed is just a, it's a storm, man. It's everything happening with the Canes. So this is a team that is worth paying attention to. And Adam is a guy that if you care about this stuff, you should be following him because Miami's going to be good this year. So here's a question. Here's a, this is a, Hey, your dog, you love yeah. dogs. <laughs> you, when we came on the pod, you were like, Oh, I spent the last 15 minutes deciding these nine different things. What does my dog want to eat? It is the widest. I don't spend that much time on what I'm going to eat. And I, <laughs> frankly, I would have eaten most of what you said you would feed your dog. You are a very dedicated dog owner, Adam, as well as a dedicated beat writer. <laughs> yeah, I try. I mean, we got two very, very sweet dogs and uh, they've had their, their health issues over the past few months. So got to make sure they're eating right. People love dogs. I'm just trying to, you know, we're still trying to, we want more people to listen so it's like we get a, a guy on at like adam who covers college football he's all over it and then the heartwarming story <laughs> of dog ownership and caring for dogs this is the kind of stuff that's gonna make the college football survivor show one of the finest podcasts in america but we'll, we'll end with this adam do they look like a contender could they be could miami be a playoff contender this year doesn't we're not guaranteeing one of the four spots for them but listen if you're in the acc you got to go through Clemson. You got to at least be able to hang with Clemson. If you're in Florida, the state of Florida, you've got to recruit with Florida State and Florida and everybody else that comes in there. I know there's optimism for the future. Could it be now with a QB like Van Dyke and an offensive mind like Josh Gaddis and a defensive mind like Kevin Steele? Could Miami legitimately be right in the playoff mix in year one of the crystal ball era? I think there's a universe that exists where that happens. I think they play their first big test is against Texas A&M. If they come out and they go to College Station and they pull off a win, maybe Tyler Van Dyke goes off for 400 plus yards, four or five touchdowns, and they they squeak one out in College Station. Then 
you look at their schedule and it's really not that crazy uh, until they face Clemson in November. There's a universe out there where they're undefeated going into that Clemson game. Uh, do I think that's likely? Probably not. Um, I think there's probably two or three losses on the schedule, but it's not insane. It's not crazy. Would I be surprised if that happened? Yeah. Would I be like just utterly shocked? Like, you know, no, probably not. I wouldn't be just absolutely floored. It's possible. I think it would be very, very difficult. I think it's unlikely, but not impossible. That game, September 17th, Miami at Texas A&M. There's a really interesting Alabama-Texas game this year. Notre Dame plays Ohio State. We know we have great, you know, national matchups. I think that Miami-Texas A&M game, because we talked about Texas A&M on our spring wrap last week, and there's a lot of optimism around the Aggies. That is a fascinating early game because it doesn't have to be an elimination game, but it removes the wiggle room for the loser. And just like we saw with Georgia Clemson in week one a year ago, that stuff really matters. It, it, it matters when it comes down to the brass tacks of the playoff discussion, but it also sets the tone for your season. And as you said, Man, I mean, if, if Miami goes and beats Texas A&M, Texas A&M clearly is going to be a top 10, top 8, top 5 kind of team coming into this year. Woo, baby! People would be loving Mario even more if they go pull that one off. But again, who's going to have the best quarterback in that game? Miami's going to have the best quarterback in that game. Texas A&M is trying to figure out who their quarterback is right now. Miami knows. I think Tyler Van Dyke, once you get past Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud as the Heisman winner and a Heisman finalist from last year – Tyler Van Dyke is right there. And you take that travels, man. I'll take that to College Station. That game, week three. Buckle up, Adam. Take your dogs. Get your <laughs> wife and your dogs. Get a caravan. You're driving from Miami. You're going to Texas. This is going to be a huge game. I love games like this. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. It's it's the it's the first game circled on the calendar. And it should be I mean, obviously, I mean, AM has a great environment. Uh, I just, yeah, exactly. If they, if they are able to pull off that win, then the hype machine is in full effect. It's champion ACC title or bust playoffs or bust. Like, and even, I mean, I think that it'll be a big game, not just, even if Miami loses, it's how they lose. If they get blown out, lose by four or five touchdowns, then okay. Well, year one, you know, we'll see what happens. Even if it's close, if they lose 31, 28, then it's like, Hey, we can beat anyone. We can stay with anyone. We can beat Clemson. You know, Clemson didn't look amazing last year. They're not invulnerable. We can be, and even, you know, if they roll through the rest of their schedule, beat Clemson, and you're looking at an 11 and 1 Miami team going into an ACC title game, that's an interesting team there, too. Very, very interesting. Keep your eyes on the Canes this year. Keep your eyes on the coverage of Adam Lichtenstein for the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Adam, thanks so much for your time and for joining us here on the College Football Survivor Show. Thanks for having me. Joined here on the College Football Survivor Show by my co-host on Buckeye Talk. It's Nathan Baird. We're here to talk about the Buckeyes, their spring game on Saturday. Nathan, we know C.J. Stroud is back. We know he was a Heisman finalist last year. We know we think he will be even better in year two as a starter. But what did this spring, not just the game, but the spring in general, did it tell us anything about the quarterback position at Ohio State? Well, yeah, we had some, I thought, great conversations throughout the spring with C.J. Stroud just about football. Really, they were starting going back to last year around the Heisman Trophy. I thought we started to have just some great, if you could pull him off to the side and talk football with him. And it really bled into the spring where 
you got a some real insight into just his mind and how it works and why it makes Ohio State better. And there is sort of a fun chess match that it sounded like was happening from time to time this winter and into the spring with the, the new defense that Jim Knowles is bringing in and him being able to occasionally like scheme some things up to make CJ Stroud, make it a little bit tougher on CJ Stroud. They don't do that a lot in practice. This really was more about, you know, installing the new defense and getting those guys set up fundamentally this spring. But that's kind of something that I think could be a, a benefit for Ohio state as it gets into the season. When you got 11 on 11s and ones versus ones, does CJ Stroud have to work a little bit harder in practice to have those, just those basic, like, you know, rep to rep successes because he had proven a lot. I thought last year, and we were questioning him as much as anybody, like three, four games into the year, uh, not knowing really the extent of the injury at that point. And once he came back from taking that week off, it was kind of lights out. So there's, I think still room to grow though. And I think that was the other thing that we heard from, you know, veteran coaches, guys like Kevin Wilson, who people know was the, you know, longtime offensive coordinator at some really great Oklahoma teams and was a head coach at Indiana. You know, the way he talks about him and how special of a talent he is, the way he thinks the game as much as anything and saying that, like, basically telling us, like, you guys think he's pretty good, but the ceiling might be even higher. And I think what they've seen, the growth they've seen from him just since January is playing into that opinion. Kyle McCord, the second guy behind CJ Stroud, going into his second year, also a five star recruit, you know. Sometimes you need your backup quarterback. Did anything you learned about Kyle McCord this spring? I think with him, it's just a matter of he now has that baseline that he didn't have last year. He was the one who, when CJ Stroud took the game off against Akron, had to go in and make his first college start as a true freshman. And he, he flashed some things, but also looked like if that had been a, a big 10 opponent, if that had been a, a tough opponent, that probably would, he probably wasn't ready for that challenge yet. And we don't get to see that much this spring. You know, I don't know what the spring game tells you you relative to that, whether he's ready for that challenge, but just based on the, um, the way that he's, he's now had another year to learn the system, another year under Ryan day. um, You would expect that he's better prepared for that scenario when it comes up again. And just for talking to him, you know, this was a guy that because of the nature of the, the sport now, when you don't start right away and you're a top 50 national recruit, a you know, five-star kind of guy, people think you're automatically hitting the portal. And it was a really interesting choice for him because the short term requires some sacrifice and requires some patience and requires swallowing your pride a little bit, maybe, and knowing that you're not as good as CJ Stroud is right now. And you're going to have to be the backup. And that might mean that you don't play it all this year in a real way. It might mean that you get forced into a, a tough spot in an, in an urgent way. But the payoff for him is huge because then this puts him as the front runner next year to be the starting quarterback, assuming Stroud goes to the NFL like we expect, to be the starting quarterback for what should still be a pretty loaded Ohio State offense. All right. So Jim Knowles in as the new defensive coordinator for the Ohio State Buckeyes, getting almost $2 million a year. They got him away from Oklahoma State. If, if I ask where did Ohio, where's Ohio State going to be better in 2022 compared to 2021 based off what we saw this spring is something related to defense. The answer. It pretty much has to be, I think. <laughs> and the, the struggles that they had on defense last year were not a shock. We had questions about certain aspects of the defense going into the season. They encountered some injuries early in the year that sort of 
emphasize those and they never were able to get them fixed to the extent that they needed to. So everyone that we've talked to, the players are really excited about what Knowles is doing on defense. They say it's a more aggressive defense, but it's also a defense that puts them in position to make plays without being what the way they describe it. They, they don't feel like it's maybe overly uh, complicated that they have to think a lot out on the field. It's a lot of being able to be uh, sort of assertive in the moment and being able to just re- make a read and go or, or be on the attack at the start of a snap. And that was something that this defense lacked last year. This defense also lacked unpredictability. It was too static at times and teams are able to take advantage of that, you know, Oregon most notably. And this year we didn't get to see that in the spring game. They kept things pretty vanilla in the spring game as far as scheme. And they weren't obviously, you know, blitzing up a a lot, but everything we've ever seen from Jim Knowles, whether it's the stuff he did at Oklahoma state, whether it was when we went to the coaches convention, Ohio state gave last week and sat down and watched him sort of break down his defense in, in various ways. It's all about, you know, bringing that aggression and disguising your coverages, disguising your pressures. And I think we're going to just see a more dynamic look from Ohio state's defense this season. And that alone, because it's going to be a lot of the same personnel. He did bring in Tanner McAllister, who was a, um, the, the nickel in his defense at Oklahoma state has come in as a, a transfer. They've got some younger guys who are maybe stepping into some bigger roles, but it's mostly the guys who are playing a lot in this defense last year who are going to be playing it again this year. But it's also a lot of guys, they were playing a lot of young guys last year. So there should be some natural progression there in, in terms of skill, having that year under their belts and the way that Jim Knowles is going to utilize them. I think there it's okay to be legitimately optimistic. If you're a Ohio state fan right now, that that alone is going to make this defense better. Ohio state has about as much back as any major team in the country. They were pretty young last year. You know, they lose Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave at receiver, Jeremy Ruckert at tight end, but they feel like they kind of took some lumps last year. and It's going to pay off because they're going to have a lot of guys with a lot more experience this, this season. But Nathan, is there an area where they won't be as good? Where, where might they take a step back in 2022? Well, I don't think the offensive line will be worse the five guys that they start should still be pretty strong and might end up being just as good as the ones they had last year, which is going to include, you know, a couple of NFL draft picks, but it's definitely not as deep. And last year there were guys on that offensive line who you knew could start for any other team in the big 10 could also start for Ohio state. And there were multiple guys like that. And this year we don't have that certainty. And they just came through a spring where they were missing at least one of the guys, um, a backup named Josh Fryer, who you might include in that conversation is one of the exceptions. So they have to figure some things out between now and August. Somebody, there's an opening for somebody else to step up. They've got veteran guys who, if they had to turn to in the moment, if they had to turn to one of them, could probably get them through. If they had to turn to two of them, it might be something that an opponent could take advantage of. And, and last year, it was, it was such a, a strength and even used it at times. They had a guy named Matt Jones who had started in the national championship game for them uh, in 2020, who became kind of the utility guy on the offensive line and could bounce around and do various things, allow them to sort of shuffle the line at times. And this year, I it's just once you get past that first five and it's a long season, um, it, it gets a little bit thin for them or really thin. So it, can somebody else emerge between now and August to maybe help solidify that group a little bit? 
All right. So Ohio State in the eight years of the playoff, four times the Buckeyes have made it, did not make it last year. Looked on track for that. A lot of discussions on this podcast and I know on our Buckeye Talk podcast as well about uh, we headed towards a showdown between the Georgia defense and the Ohio State offense and then Aiden Hutchinson and David Ajabo and Dax Hill and Blake Corum and Mike McDonald and Jim Harbaugh and Cade McNamara made sure that did not happen. Did Ohio State look like a playoff contender this spring, Nathan, as we think about the Buckeyes in 2022? Doesn't mean they're guaranteed to be one of the four, but will they be right in the mix? They should be because we don't really look around this team and see a lot of weaknesses as just exemplified by the fact that I'm talking about offensive line depth behind guys who we think are are future NFL guys as being like one of the things that sort of stood out to us this spring. You could also throw tight end in there. They're they're not super deep there. And we don't know uh, about the, you know, maybe the impact at the top of that room, but what you have, I mean, you know, CJ Stroud, arguably the best quarterback in the country, Uh, Trevion Henderson, arguably the best running back in the country. Jackson Smith and Jigba, arguably the best wide receiver in the country. So right there, you're starting off with a lot of firepower. And like I said before, the defense now, whether it's a defensive line that looks like it legitimately goes eight guys deep with guys that they trust and feel like could be starters on any given day. The linebacker group, they were in transition there last year, sort of between philosophies, but also transitioning between the the sort of old guard that wasn't really developing to the level that they needed and this young group that was coming in behind them. And now we're starting to see them settle in with a a a two deep or more of, of guys that they trust. And the, the secondary should absolutely be must improve. Denzel Burke had a, a really strong freshman season and is locked in there as a starter. And now they're starting to see going three or four cornerbacks deep that are, are, are good. And the, the, the safeties could really be a strength. I think it's something they talked about. The coaches talked about with some trepidation this spring because some guys were banged up and they didn't know how many healthy guys they had that could be on the field for them at that moment. But I think the first three, and really the first five and maybe even six are guys that they feel like can go out and help them win football games. So just you start to see fewer and fewer glaring weaknesses or potential weaknesses as the season gets going. And because last year they could never overcome that on defense, the weaknesses on defense, as great as that offense was kept tripping them up. I think they're going to, this defense should remove some of those obstacles that were holding that offense back. He's Nathan Baird. You can follow him on Twitter at, N.W. Baird. You can read him at cleveland.com slash OSU. And you can, of course, listen to him on the Buckeye Talk podcast five days a week, although maybe for not much longer because he's going to have a baby. So if you're like, hey, I'd never heard that Nathan Baird guy before. He seems pretty smart. And then you go to cleveland.com or maybe you try to listen to Buckeye Talk for the first time. And you're like, where's that guy? You promised me Baird. It means his baby king. So might have to wait till July to get more more Baird in your life. We do have like a beautiful backlog now of like three years worth of pods that people can go back through while I'm on paternity leave. I can think of no better use of your time, really. A beautiful backlog. Buckeye talk. All right, Nathan, thank you for making your debut here on the College Football Survivor Show. Sure thing. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Back on the College Football Survivor Show, time to talk a little Michigan State, and that means Matt Wenzel of MLive.com is going to join us, the Spartans, with their spring game on Saturday, Matt, but not really a game, right? More of like an open practice, as you described it in your coverage? 
Yeah, and this is the second year in a row that they've had this format, and it's basically just they've been forced into it. Last year they were, you know, with all the portal turnover, they're really thin at linebacker and cornerback, and, and this year it's the offensive line, not because of the portal, but because, you know, they just lost guys that were out of eligibility and, you know, a few guys to the portal, but, um, you know, injuries and guys recovering from offseason surgery, uh, they, they just don't have the bodies. You know, they had eight guys, eight offensive linemen dressed for the spring game, and two of them were walk-ons. Uh, and only two of the the eight overall have played in the college, taken a snap in a college game. So just, you know, product of the circumstances, so best they could do. Yeah. I guess. Uh, Ohio State, Ohio State actually ran into that a little bit as well. They didn't make it as much of a game as they often do. And Ryan Day cited the idea of like, hey, offensive line depth was a big issue. That is that going to linger or will they be OK by the time we get to August and preseason practice? Or are they going to be looking in the portal for a guy or two this offseason? So, I mean, just overall, I think they were the situation is vastly different than it was a year ago. Um, last year, they had they were so deep with experience. They basically, for the first half of the season, were rolling not, a rotation of nine guys. Um, now, with the with the attrition, most of it natural. You know, you lose three starters. I think it's five total from that of that nine from the playing group. They're already going to be thin. Um, they only bring back five offensive linemen who have played in college. Uh, so. The hope when we talked to Chris Kapilovic, uh was late in, in March was that they would be fully healthy come summer. Um, they do have one portal guy coming in, Brian Green, who's a center guard from, from Washington State. There's a chance they could add one more. Um, that would probably be a position you'd think if, if they have a, if they can free up one more spot for one more addition, you'd think they'd look in the off- look in the portal for an offensive lineman if there was a fit. But I mean, regardless, they're gonna when they when they start fall camp, you know, they have a you know five you could project as as your starters, but um, other than that, you're going to need guys who are either coming off their first or second year with the program that are going to need to step up and fill out the two deep. And it's just it's a different situation than last year, and it's it has affected spring practice in that they they like Saturday where you couldn't have a full you know green versus white game and just play it all out. They've had to limit adjust practice and limit the amount of team reps they could get just because they don't have the bodies. All right. So that's, you know, that's life sometimes like this when you do have that turnover. We all know Michigan State, great season last year in year two for Mel Tucker, the first real year of Mel because the year before was the COVID year. 11 and two, number nine in the final AP poll, um, a huge bowl win in the Peach Bowl. You you get a win like that in one of the major bowls. So when we think about maybe where Michigan State, Matt, will have a little trouble living up to last year is is offensive line where they might take the biggest step back or is it losing Kenneth Walker the third at running back who was one of the best players in college football last year and might be the first running back taken in this looming 2022 NFL draft yeah I mean to be determined on the offensive line we'll see what what Chris Kapilovic can do with that group uh Mel obviously trusts him he thinks he's as good as there is in the business um but yeah, I mean the Walker loss. I mean, just you can't, and and they've set it up and down, left and right. You you can't replace him. It's it's impossible. So there will obviously be a different look uh, for them offensively. We already got a glimpse of it in the Peach Bowl when because Walker opted out of the game. Um, and, and you know, to be fair, Pittsburgh had a really good run defense. It was one of the best in the nation. So it's kind of a challenge for for a Michigan State backfield that had. <laughs> Not had as many uh, carries as you probably would have had split up, obviously, without Walker. Um, so they, they bring in uh, uh, 
Jalen Berger already transferred in from Wisconsin, and you got Jerk Bassard coming in from Colorado in May. So obviously they looked at the room and thought, we don't have what we want, so we're going to go out and get add a couple more guys. And, yeah, I mean, there there isn't going to be a Michigan State running back winning the Dope Walker Award this this season. I, can, I, I would put my money on that. That's life, right? Again, did you guys know at this time a year ago how good Kenneth Walker III was going to be? Because obviously he had put up – Good numbers at Wake Forest, but then he also made a leap in East Lansing. I mean, <laughs> I, I looked at the tape. I liked what I saw. You know, I was – I covered – they played Michigan State in the, the pinstripe bowl in 2019, and, and Walker was in that game. I could not remember him at all at the, from, at the time when he transferred. But I went back and I watched the film, and I really liked what I saw. Um, now, what I have told you, uh, he was going to rush for 1,636 <laughs> yards and 18 touchdowns run for five scores against Michigan and damn near single-handedly win that game for him? No, I mean, that would have been a lie. I thought he would be good. I thought he would be an upgrade. You know, the way the coaches and, and other players talked about him since arriving in January, there, you know, the reviews are really good. But, you, you you know, let's just talk until you see it on the field. And then, you know, we go to Northwestern and he rips one off for 75 yards on the first play. And you're like, okay, I, I think they might have something there. And he just, you know. It's hard to overstate the difference he made for an offense that was in a running game that was one of the worst in the nation in recent years. He was an absolute game changer. All right. So if you're not going to have Kenneth Walker the third, then maybe you chuck it around a little more in 2022. And they might be ready to do that, right? Peyton Thorne is coming back at quarterback as, you know, one of the better returning quarterbacks, I think, in major college football. What did you see from Peyton Thorne this spring? Sometimes it's harder to learn about guys that you kind of already know about. This guy had a really good year last year, but where are they at quarterback right now? Yeah, I mean, we don't, we get to watch, we got to watch. They let us open the doors for a couple of times to let us watch a little practice. I I don't, based on what I've seen on Twitter, I don't think we got uh, the same access, the amount of access you guys got at Ohio State. So, um, you know, and it's just with, with a guy like him, you know, I don't know how much you're really looking to see improvement in practice, you know, you're with, given what you could see. You, you saw the leap he took last year, you know, in 20, 2000, in 2020, you know, he played a little bit as Rocky's backup, started the last game, and you saw some glimpses. And then he really took a huge step last year, you know, he, you know, throwing for a program record, a single season program record, 27 touchdowns, you know, he's he was efficient, especially in the first half of the year, and you know, then kind of turned over the ball a little bit more. But really like what you see. Really like the upside and potential for him to to grow from there. And you know, we Jay Johnson at the start of the spring said, you know, for our offense to to take the next step, it's going to require Peyton Thorne to be even better. So I mean, it's with Walker gone, this is his team. This is his offense. Um, he's the leader, and there's going to be there are expectations for him to play at an even higher level. He knows it, and you know, he's the. You know, he's a smart kid. You know, he's the son of a of a very successful coach. Um, his dad was the the head coach uh, at. Um, why am I blanking on the name now? Division three program won the national championship out of Illinois. <laughs> Some reason can't remember it. Uh, I'll think of it in a second. But he just took a job as the OC and, and QB's coach at Western Michigan. Um, so I mean, he grew up around the game, studying the game. And he's just a smart guy, and physically he has that as well. You know, he's he's a dual threat guy. You know, if, if the pocket breaks down, he can pick up first downs. So he, he's mobile. He's got a strong arm, smart. I think everything is there for him to, to, you know, really be, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in the Big Ten, which I thought he, he to be fair, was one of the better ones in the Big Ten last year. North Central, 
Is that the, that's the college? Yeah, you'd think I wrote it probably 500 times over the course of the last few three or four years. I think I'd be able to remember that one on the spot. Let's be clear. I didn't know that. I just fired up <laughs> the Google machine while you were talking. So I don't want to uh, have everybody, anyone thinking that I actually know what I'm talking about here. So listen, what is the, like, what is the Peyton Thorne ceiling? Because we've seen, there's been like an interesting mix of, of Michigan State quarterbacks that have come through. Um, over the years. And there's often been some pretty good quarterback play at Michigan State. But I, for instance, I will go back to a guy even like Kirk Cousins, who was a good college quarterback. I didn't know that Kirk Cousins was going to be this good when he was at Michigan State. But if we are in a world where, okay, CJ Stroud at Ohio State was a Heisman finalist last year, and he's back. There's Graham Mertz at Wisconsin. There's Cade McNamara and JJ McCarthy at Michigan. I'm trying to think who I'm not thinking of. Like, could we, Michael Penix left Indiana. Could we be in a world where, could Peyton Thorne be the second best quarterback in the Big Ten this year? And I'm not asking you to run down it mentally in your head, all the Big Ten quarterbacks, but like what that level of play would be like, hey, Peyton Thorne can win Michigan State games. Hey, you got a game plan for Peyton Thorne. Hey, this guy can lead a game-winning drive in the final four minutes. What's the ceiling here? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, Stroud, we... You know, we saw what he was capable of doing when he accomplished last year. But I think Thorne can be up near that level. You know, if he can, you know, cut down on the turnovers because you you see these these great plays. You know, the ability to to lead this team to wins, and then you see some plays where you know he probably shouldn't throw the ball there, or he needs to protect it, and you know, fumbles or something like that. And uh, yeah, I I think he has the potential. You know, if he has a huge season and plays at a level that I think they're hoping and expecting him to, you know, this could be a guy that, you know, this would be his last year in East Lansing. He could go down as one of the better quarterbacks, one of the best quarterbacks in program history with the ability, you know, with the, with the arm he has, with the receivers he has, you know, if the run game can can be competent and allow them to not just get stacked up against uh, in the past game, I, I think, yeah, he could be, he could be right up there as, you know, in that, you know, second team all Big Ten level. If Stroud is able to replicate what he did last year, I think Thorne has the potential. He's got the talents, and like you said, the uh, the the understanding of the game. The, you know, the mental component is there. It's just a matter of you know taking that next step, and you know from what he did from twenty twenty to twenty twenty one, and, and seeing growth from from last year. All right, so if we're thinking where Michigan State will be better in twenty twenty two compared to a year ago. Where is that? Because like you said, you know, Peyton Thorne, the passing game was pretty good already last year. Is there an area where they really think, where you really think they might take a leap? Yeah, that would be the passing defense because they were last in the nation in, in passing yards allowed last year. Um, there was a lot that went into that. You know, you had the fact that, you know, I mentioned, you know, the being short at cornerback last year in the spring. And, you know, they basically completely overhauled the cornerback room through the portal. Um, you know, you had, and now you return four corners who started at least one game last year. Um, you bring in Amir Speed. He's a 6'3 corner who won a national championship in Georgia last year. So with all that experience back at corner, and, and Mel is now co- coaching cornerbacks. So <laughs> with that kind of leadership and, and Harlan Barnett overseeing the secondary, you have both, all five starters back in the secondary. You know, you got both safeties coming back. Um, and then Nickel is kind of where you just – I'm just really intrigued with what, the, what they're going to do defensively, you know, with some of the changes. You know, Darius Snow took over as a starting nickel last year, moved to safety in the Peach Bowl game, and now he's working at linebacker. And it's 
there it is. I just I envision them being maybe a little bit more matchup based uh, on the teams they play, you know, as far as who they use and what spots. But either way, I would expect them to be significantly better um, defending the pass this year. They have more speed on the field. You all this depth at, at quarter, cornerback and linebacker now. You bring in um, two linebacker transfers who played a ton of football, and Aaron Brule from uh, Mississippi State and Jacoby Winman from from UNLV. And I I think that you know second to third level of the defense is is really really the potential to to show growth um you're really strong up the middle and then it's really kind of the the ends where um they need to get more they need to get a better pass rush and, and they addressed that with their coaching staff in the offseason by hiring brandon jordan which was about as intriguing of a hire as there was a for an assistant coach that i saw can you can you go into that a little bit i know people were very interested in that kind of move what's for the people who don't know what's so interesting about that hire yeah, so Brandon Jordan is a guy that was, you know, he he had low level playing and and coaching experience in college, and then you know he was on a staff and lost a job and and was basically just at home working. And he just started, you know, he was being a volunteer uh, high school coach back in Louisiana, where he's from. And then he just started training guys on his own. And the clips were on social media, and uh, you know it, it started catching attention. And next thing you know, he's working with the top players in the NFL. You know, it's like what is it? almost 200 active players in the NFL, some of the biggest names that are out there that he's training. And so, you know, he's got this successful business, but, you know, in the offseason, Mel thought the, the pass rush needed to improve. Um, you know, it, they tied for ninth in the nation in sacks per game last year, but if you ask the staff, the, that was misleading. The, 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 the total was higher because of the number of pass rush attempts they had because the defense couldn't get off the field and, and teams were just throwing the ball a ton. So really interested. I mean – as Mel would say, you know, you know, he's working with NFL guys. If you're an NFL guy, they, you don't want anything. They're not going to deal with anybody that can't help you. And, and, you know, so he helped these guys. He helps them get better. He helps them get paid. And so, you know, I, you know, Brandon thought that, you know, maybe, you know, he had interest from LSU and the Nano Sproul and thought maybe some schools didn't look into him because of uh, – well, they thought he might not be interested in being on a staff just because he's got this successful business. But he said it was always his dream to to get back on a college staff and Michigan State gave him the opportunity. So he's working with everybody from, you know, a 340-pound tackle to a 170-pound cornerback, you know, coming off the edge for a blitz. So I'll be really interested to see how that plays out um, in the fall. Very interesting. All right, let's wrap it up here because we don't want people to forget. The very first college football playoff rankings that came out last year – Number one was the team that would eventually win the national title, Georgia. Number two was Alabama, who's the best program uh, of the last 20 years. And number three was Michigan State at 8-0 in the first playoff rankings. Then Ohio, uh, Michigan State loses to Ohio State. And then we have this great uh, – or was it – no, was it, was it the Ohio State loss? They lost to somebody else. They lost to – Purdue gave them their first loss. Yeah, that's right. They lost to Purdue. And then we had this wonderful controversy where Michigan, with the head-to-head loss to Michigan State, is ranked ahead of Michigan State when they both have one loss. And I know on this show, Shahan and I expended a lot of energy. What is the committee doing? How can you have Michigan State ahead? Then it turns out, well, Michigan's a playoff team. Okay. I don't know if that proved the committee was right or not. But Michigan State, Matt, was right there. They were in playoff discussions all year until they took their second loss against Michigan State, against Ohio State, excuse me, in week 11. Can this Michigan State team be in the mix? Can they be a contender in 2022 and be discussed in any kind of similar way, Matt? 
I mean, if you can do it last year, then sure, why not? I mean, obviously Walker played a huge um, part of that. But, yeah, I mean, Mel, Mel knows what it takes to win a national championship. He was part of the staff at Ohio State that did it. He was part of the staff that, that Alabama did it. He was on staff at Georgia when they reached the championship game. For them, you know, you look at what they've been able to do, and, I mean, it's not crazy. I mean, Michigan State was in the playoff less than a decade ago under Mark D'Antonio. Um, you look at their what they've done. I mean, they showed they can beat Michigan, right? Mel's 2-0 against them, the only coach in program history to start 2-0 against them. They can beat Penn State. They did it last year. The question is, can you beat Ohio State? I mean, that's what everybody in the Big Ten is looking to do. So if you look at their schedule, I think there's a, you know, a decent chance they start 5-0, and you know, in, in early October. And but then, then comes the gauntlet. You got to play Ohio State. You got to play Wisconsin. And then you go to Michigan in, in three straight weeks. So I think that will determine where they're at, obviously. Um, do they have the potential? Sure. Would I put, uh, you know, a bunch of money on it right now? No, but I, I pick Ohio State to win the Big Ten every year, and I, I don't see that changing in the future until something drastic happens. But, yeah, they, they absolutely have the potential. The commitment to resources has been um, remarkable, what they've done. You know, obviously Mel got his 10-year, $95 million extension. That makes him one of the top paid coaches in the nation. Um, some of the, And the commitment to things behind the scenes that people don't see you know, with the recruiting, you know, budget, you know, who the staff, you know, the, the guys that he's brought in, you know, even something as small as nutrition, you know, that Mel made a, you know, said we need to, you know, bring in Amber Reinstein to get these people right. Their the commitment to resources are, are there. Mel's getting his guys, you know, this is going to be year three. Um, so the potential is obviously there, but pulling it off will be, will obviously be incredibly difficult, just like it is for anybody else to win. He's Matt Wenzel. You can read his. Michigan State football coverage at MLive.com. Matt, where can the good people find you on Twitter? Oh, geez. MWenzel2, I believe, is the uh, handle. I don't know who MWenzel1 was. Look at you. uh... You sound like a person (laughs) who's not addicted to Twitter, who is not searching yourself and scrolling every minute of every day. Of course, you put your best work up there and you engage with the fans. But I almost like the fact that you're like, what? What's my handle? That's the sign of a well-rounded life. Well, I unfortunately in this job, like, you know, like just about everybody else, you spend your entire day practically on Twitter. But um, that is a just a requirement. I'm not saying I enjoy that part, but, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, it's a good way for the people to find you. And then they yes. can go and read your stuff at MLive.com. Matt, thank you for your time. And thanks for joining us here on the College Football Survivor Show. Of course. Thanks, Doug. Wrapping up our tour of spring games from this past weekend with the national champs, the Georgia Bulldogs, we bring in Brandon Adams, who I think talks more about the Bulldogs than anybody out there, but I think probably also knows more about the Bulldogs than anybody out there. Brandon, you're still doing it daily at Dog Nation Daily on the podcast, right? That's exactly right. Although I don't know that anyone can know the most about Georgia right now. You know, Kirby likes to keep those cards pretty close to the vest, so Whatever it is we think we know, he's going to keep us guessing normally anyway. I was looking at your uh, at your podcast. We do a lot of podcasts here. The latest podcast episode, 1,675. So That's right. Woo, much respect, my friend. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, we have a good time doing what we're doing. And you know this, Doug, because you've covered college football for a long time. That There is an appetite for college football fans that extends beyond just like September, October, November. And I think years ago, we probably had that inclination. And I think that the way in which like podcast media and streaming media, things like that have just created an opportunity to sort of satisfy that fan that 
wants to follow the recruiting trail, or now we have transfer portal and all, all the stuff that happens this time of year that, you know, maybe there was a time in which this was a fall sport, but I don't quite know that, that is, is quite so true anymore. It seems like the off season is just as intense as the in season for not just Georgia, but a lot of the teams that Georgia competes with as well. So if you guys want to follow the national champs year round, go ahead and listen to Brandon at Dog Nation Daily. You'll get great updates about what's going on with Georgia football. So the spring game this past Saturday for Georgia quarterback situation. Hey, there's a guy named Stetson Bennett who won a national championship and he is still in Athens, Brandon. But man, there's some talent there behind him at quarterback as well. What did what did anybody learn about the quarterback situation at Georgia this spring? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, Stetson Bennett appears to still be firmly entrenched as a starter. He probably did not have a very good spring game on Saturday, and I guess different people can decide how much they think that really matters. But there had been a lot of curiosity among Georgia fans about what Georgia had behind Bennett's quarterback position. You get a guy in Carson Beck who was around a top 300 or so recruit, four-star guy when he signed with Georgia. Georgia probably beat out like the likes of, like say, Florida, teams like that for services. And when you see him in video, he throws the ball well. And yeah, maybe a year ago, this was not a guy that Georgia maybe felt comfortable putting in a game because at one point it was thought, well, he was the number two quarterback with Bennett, you know, somewhere buried in the depth chart. And yet when JT Daniels got hurt, it was actually Bennett they brought back in, did not put him back. So maybe at that time, maybe they didn't fully trust Beck as of yet. But given the way that he played on Saturday, given the fact that he's going into his third year in the program, I think he's earning a level of trust. And I think right now you would probably have to say that Beck, as the in the competition to be Bennett's understudy, the number two, is probably ahead of Brock Vandegrift, who was a five-star quarterback coming out of high school. He's from the Athens area. At one point in time, he was an Oklahoma commit back when Lincoln Riley was still a Sooners coach. But it, for, for the moment, it sort of appears that Beck is probably ahead of Vandegrift and for the Georgia fans that aren't quite sold on Bennett, and there are always going to be a few that aren't, uh, I guess Beck will now be the source of their curiosity, much the same way JT Daniels was uh, last year. But but it certainly seems like Carson Beck may have worked his way up to, or in the process of working his way up to that number two quarterback spot for right now. JT Daniels obviously has transferred to West Virginia, no longer part of that mix. Brandon, it's, it's the, the life, I think, now for the best programs in college football in the transfer portal era, it's not just about who your quarterback is right now. Because if you don't have a quarterback you can rely on, you're not going to make the playoff and win a national championship. But it's always about, well, who's next? Who's next? And do you have a guy in the pipeline? And then is that guy in the pipeline going to be patient if there's somebody ahead of him that's playing? Do, do Georgia fans right now feel good about the pipeline with Beck and Vandegrift behind Bennett? Does it feel like how long might Vandegrift stick around? I know it's it's hard. These are kids' lives. You don't want to speculate too much about the transfer portal. But as you look to the post-Stetson-Bennett world in 2023, does Georgia quarterback feel like it's in pretty good shape? Well, there's always going to be angst related to the transfer portal, because, for, especially for quarterbacks, because it's not like, you know, if you're an offensive tackle, you can play guard. Or if you're a wide receiver, sometimes you'll switch over and play defensive back. There are other things you can do. Quarterbacks, for the most part, only play quarterback, and there's only one of them on the field at any given time. And so, therefore, they probably feel a little bit more pressure than others to go find a place they can play. So I think the Georgia fans are definitely on pins and needles, but the idea that one of these quarterbacks, and there's another, you know, pretty highly rated recruit incoming freshman that just signed at Georgia, that over the course of the long haul, you can't keep all these guys. And for between Beck and Vandergriff, you might lose one sooner rather than later. 
But here's the other big part of the quarterback discussion for Georgia is that right now Georgia is considered to be a major player for Arch Manning. That's the son of uh, Cooper Manning, the you know brother of Peyton and Eli. Georgia's thought to be you know very far down the road in Manning's recruitment. So you know, given the quarterback depth that's here right now, and each one of these guys have their admirers among you know certain pockets of the fan base, the truth is is that Manning could come in next year. There's a strong possibility that he might, and like topple over this apple cart one more time. So I would say that Georgia is one of these programs, maybe everybody's this way, but certainly Georgia is one of these programs where there's just destined to be quarterback drama literally every year with a new guy coming in, vying for playing time, somebody else maybe looking to go somewhere else. I mean, it sort of seems like now quarterback is just kind of a year-to-year basis for Georgia and maybe programs of that ilk around college football where at any given moment you've got big guys coming in and big guys going and everybody trying to find their place. Arch Manning solves a lot of problems. <laughs> that's, that's, oh, what's your thing? Oh, it's Arch Manning. Oh, well, that, that's uh, right. We're all good. That's the what, three years of Arch Manning, just like Trevor Lawrence. What are you going to do? Play this Well, guy I would also add to this, years? and I don't mean to cut you off. I would also add to this is that I was looking at this comparison the other day. So if you look at Nick Saban when he first got to Alabama, from 2007, that's his first year, to 2009, uh, 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 you know, you're talking about a guy that, you know, I should say not 2009, nine recruiting classes later, you're talking about a guy that, you know, really only brought in one quarterback out of high school that was capable of starting for him over the course of those first nine recruiting classes. That was A.J. McCarron. It wasn't until uh, Jalen Hurts came in with the class of 2016 that that real, uh, you know, year after year impressive pipeline of quarterbacks started rolling in. It started with Hurts, went on to Tua, and now it's a Bryce Young. That's 10 recruiting classes in for a guy like Nick Saban. And the person of Kirby Smart, you know, he's still not quite to that point yet in his time at Georgia. So I think one of the things that people ought to keep in mind about Georgia is the quarterback position has probably been the one area on the field that's lagged behind the other positions, even though Georgia's won the national championship. But Smart's not quite yet to the spot that Nick Saban was at Alabama, Saban obviously being his former mentor. You know, Smart's not quite to where Saban was when Saban really started hitting on quarterbacks year after year. So maybe Manning could be the start of that for Kirby. There's also a chance that, you know, Manning goes somewhere else, maybe Alabama or Texas. But I think it'll be interesting to judge Kirby on quarterbacks a couple of years from now when he truly is, you know, fully seasoned as a head coach. Does quarterback look a little bit like the success he's had in other position groups? Or is it destined to be for a defensive-minded head coach, one of those position groups that just lags a little bit in comparison to the more offensive-minded coaches that seem to be having success other places. That's that's a really smart point by you, Brandon, because you know Nick Saban was winning without superstar quarterbacks, with defense, with the running game. Kirby won without a superstar quarterback. But then once Saban goes Jalen Hurts, Tua Tonga-Vailoa, Mac Jones, Bryce Young, now you change the program. You don't diminish the defense, but you add, if Kirby starts doing that, you're talking about a program that can level up in even a different way. So that's a very good point because, again – they needed good but not spectacular quarterback play last year because they had so much else going on. When we think about how good Georgia was, Brandon, is there an area in 2022 based off what you learned and saw this spring? Could they be even better at something? Where could Georgia even improve this season off a national championship year? I think if you're looking for the one spot that could happen, it could be along the offensive line and what that does to the running game. You know, in 2017 and 2018, this is a Georgia team that led the SEC in rushing. The last couple of years, they've been a little bit more kind of middle of the pack. They've ran it well when they needed to, but it's not been that dominant rushing attack that probably defined the first couple of teams that Kirby Smart put together. Now, some of that's because Todd Munkin, an offensive coordinator, does throw it more than Georgia used to, but also some of that 
they just haven't had like the Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle, DeAndre Swift type backs these last couple of years. But I think with a better offensive line, I would say that last year Georgia's offensive line was good. It was, you know, didn't hurt him winning a national championship, but it probably was not a great offensive line. I think there's the chance this year they could take a step back in that direction. They probably did have great offensive line play 2017, 2018, maybe even 2019, although the overall rushing numbers had started to dip some by that point in time. Uh, probably only good offensive line play the last couple of years, but I think there's a possibility they maybe get back to being, you know, the Georgia offensive lines, the way that Sam Pittman had that group uh, playing so well. And if it if that's the case, then the Georgia rushing attack will probably be the beneficiary of that. Georgia's protected the quarterback pretty well here last couple of years, but, you know, it's only been, I would say, good to, to very good when it comes to the uh, rushing attack and maybe not quite, you know, the, the great level it would have been a couple of years ago. But that is one of the areas in which I do think they could be in line for some improvement this year compared to where they were a year ago. So, Brandon, then the other side of that, when we think about this Georgia defense, and again, that Georgia defense is going to go down in history. We're all getting ready for the NFL draft. We know Jordan Davis is Jordan Davis, and Devontae White's Devontae White, and Kobe Dean's and Kobe Dean. But, man, it feels like this whole draft process, it's like, oh, who are guys who are moving up? Oh, Trayvon Walker, he's moving up. Oh, Channing Tindall, he's moving up. Oh, Lewis Seen, he's moving up. They are going to dominate the NFL draft. I think Ohio State has the record with 10 picks in the first three rounds of a draft. I think Georgia's going to break that record and maybe break it easily. We know guys like Jalen Carter are back, but when you think about where Georgia won't be as good, Brandon, I mean, when you set that standard of defense, can they be that kind of defense again with all the talent out the door? Yeah, it certainly stands to reason that matching what they did in 2021 would be very difficult to do. Now, as I've told my audience a few times, the goal is not to be as good as Georgia was defensively in 2021. It's to be as good as they need to be in uh, 2022. But, you know, I was thinking about this uh, a little bit recently. If you look at Georgia and the success they enjoyed defensively last season, it's important to note that if we were having this conversation a year ago, I mean, obviously the expectation was that Georgia would be good defensively, that they typically are. But guys like Devontae Wyatt, and others were not necessarily even, you know, projected as as number one, you know, first round type draft picks. Trayvon Walker is going to go very high in the first round. You know, he would have definitely been getting draft chatter, but it's not like that was even a sure thing either. That a lot of these guys actually played their way into the position that they're in because of how they played this year. Now, I'm not saying that a whole n- another crop of Georgia guys are going to do that for the upcoming season. That'd be asking a lot, but there were a lot of Georgia guys who did become more prominent, more well known because of the way they played during this past season. And I think the chances of that happening for a couple of guys again this year, they, you know, that, that could at least happen. But one of the things I think you can't give enough credit to is the job that Dan Lanning did over the course of the last couple of years in upgrading the pass rush for George. You know, anytime Kirby Smart, you know, a defensive-minded head coach, his influence is always going to be very, you know, paramount with this defense. But the truth is, in the early days of Kirby Smart, when Mel Tucker was defensive coordinator, Georgia was very stingy. They didn't give up very many yards. They didn't give up very many points. But they weren't always as aggressive as maybe you'd like for them to be with, you know, getting after, you know, quarterbacks and putting up big tackle for loss numbers, big sack numbers. Last couple of years in the pandemic year of 2020, which was a little bit of a weird year, but in the 2021 campaign there as well, Georgia just was a lot more impactful in the backfield. I think that, I mean, one of the whispers you hear is they had maybe heard from a couple of recruits. They didn't really feel like they'd be turned loose at Georgia where they might be turned loose somewhere else. That was a thing that had been kind of, you know, kicked around a little bit. Who knows how true it was, but it had been, it had been discussed. Well, last year, Georgia turned some guys loose 
let them do their thing. And so some of the success of Georgia defensively last year was not just the talented players, although there was an overwhelming amount of talent, but it was a Georgia defense that was allowed to be as aggressive as the kind of elite talent that Georgia has would want to be. And so with Lanning gone, with Glenn Schumann and Will Muschamp kind of in a co-defensive coordinator role, can they find a way to replicate that same mindset? Because it's pretty obvious that once Lanning became defensive coordinator, there was more of that instilled into Georgia. And I think it'll be interesting to see how much of that is still left with him no longer there. And man, we're getting right down to it. I love so many great non-conference games in college football this year. We talked earlier on this pod about Texas, Alabama. We talked about um, some other big, big time Miami, Texas A&M, but how Georgia, Oregon, Dan Lanning coming back in the opener. Unbelievable. How great is that game going to be to kick off Georgia's season? Yeah, I think it's going to be really fun. And listen, I think that Lanning is one of those guys that Georgia fans are going to have no problem rooting for as he goes out West there. And, I think it's really cool that Lanning, who's a very young guy, to get this kind of job this early into his coaching life, I think is pretty impressive. Now, as far as like the game itself goes to begin the season, like the one question I'm always going to have is, we don't always see these Pac-12 teams playing well when they travel west to east. Now, I guess last year they did go into Columbus and win. That's as, you know, as difficult a thing as it can be done. But, you know, for a game like this, I think it's one of the reasons why when you see kind of the reimagining of the Pac-12 and our new commissioner, I think they're going to try to play more of these type of games in cities like Las Vegas and things like that, and things like that, because I think they they like the idea of a big non-conference matchup taking place in the Pacific Time Zone. So you know, playing this game in Atlanta, I think that makes it a little bit tough for Oregon. But as you said, you know, Bo Nix, who knows uh, Georgia well, he's likely to be the Oregon starting quarterback. Obviously, Lanning, who knows Georgia really well, Oregon's a you know a very big brand, you know, from a college football standpoint that. I would say this goes on the list with some other really fun week one, week two, all the way to, I think, week three. I think A&M Miami, I think, is week three, that you've got three pretty good weeks of non-conference games, which I just think makes the uh, anticipation of the start of the season that much more fun. All right, Brandon. So the big money question, we saw what Georgia did a year ago. Will Georgia be back in the playoff mix in 2022? Not guaranteeing them a spot. You know, that's, that's only four for for now. But will they be right there in the, in the discussion all year? I'm going to say yes. Now, if you ask me, what, is it as an SEC champion or as an at-large team the way they were a year ago? That's the one I'm not quite so sure about. But Georgia's going to be a, a very big favorite in all of its regular season games. We talked about the Georgia-Oregon game. Beyond that, this is a pretty favorable schedule for Georgia this year where they could even be a double-digit favorite in every game. It's possible in every game they'll play in the regular season. So it would not take a huge strain to get Georgia to 12-0 and where they were a year ago, once again playing Alabama in the SEC championship, who brings back, obviously, you know, you know, a couple of the nation's top players on both sides of the ball. But, you know, if Georgia were to make the, uh, the play, or, you know, made the playoff a year ago as a 12-0 and team, or should say 12-1 and after the uh, loss in the SEC championship, they could travel a similar path here this year which will simply mean it's up to the rest of the country to decide what kind of resume they can put together in terms of the top national contenders. But it's not that hard to imagine Georgia getting to 12-0 and again this year, heading into the SEC championship, simply on the basis of what I kind of view to be a fairly favorable schedule. He's Brandon Adams. He talks Georgia and Georgia football and Georgia sports every day at Dog Nation Daily. If you guys care about college football on the biggest stage and you're not listening to Brandon, you're missing out. You're not going to find better Georgia coverage anywhere. Brandon, thanks so much for taking time out of day to join us here. Doug, it's a great pleasure to be with you. I look forward to getting a chance to chat with you soon. 
Thanks to Brandon and all the other guests today. That was a great wrap-up of spring football this past weekend. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.